Hello and welcome to the Ottoman History Podcast. You are just listening to a song from Ganavya Dorai Swami's upcoming album, Aikyam. In this episode, we will be discussing historical narratives about how Muslims first came to the land that is now Pakistan and India, a new interpretation of major textual sources for those historical narratives, and how the narratives animate politics in South Asia today. Our guest is Manan Ahmed Asif, Assistant Professor of History at Columbia University and founder of the blog Chapati Mystery. We recorded this episode from his office so you may hear the sounds of New York City in the background. But check out our recent episode, Ottoman New York, for many more. Here's the interview. We're here today to discuss his most recent book, A Book of Conquest the Chashnama and Muslim origins in South Asia. The book was published by Harvard University Press in 2016. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Shane. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited about this book because it takes on very directly a lot of political themes that are animating the field of South Asian studies today. Broadly, it's concerned with the stories that are told about how Muslims came to South Asia or the origin stories of Muslims in South Asia. For listeners that may be unfamiliar with the context, uh, could you tell us a little bit about the ways in which the story is told by South Asian historians and by nation states today? Sure. Um, I think we have to sort of rewind to sort of um, colonialism. Uh, it's a colonialism's arrival in South Asia and the ways in which the politics of colonial rule played out in the 19th century particularly. Um, and one of the basic tenets of the colonial um, governance in South Asia was that there were distinct um, groups, um, at first racial and ethnic, and then later on religious, that um, were participating in um, power and labor for South Asia. One of those groups was Muslim, the other group was Hindu, and there were obviously other, yet other divisions. Um, and for the British Orientalist project, the idea of being Muslim was located primarily from outside the boundaries of subcontinental Asia. One, because Islam originated in Arabia, and the idea of Islam as a constitutive uh, ideology was that it emerged fully formed in the earliest moments. So Arabian Islam was Islam and not as some other scholars have argued, um, for example, most recently, Shahab Ahmed, but what we knew of contemporary Islam is a, is a long historical process uh, mm-hmm. that, that sort of spans a huge geography. And when about were these British uh, Orientalists and historians making these arguments? The, the sort of discovery and, and argumentation, um, of particularly of Muslims as foreigners, starts to pick up speed in the early part of the 19th century. And it's in the histories that are sort of the the synthetic histories uh, that are written around uh, 
1850 onwards that you get the sort of entrenchment of this narrative of the advent of Islam or the arrival of Islam. And it continues well into the 20th century. Um, and one of the points I make in the introduction of the book is that the actual premise of the partition of 1947 for the subcontinent was precisely that there was a 1400 years of um, civilizational difference. And this argument was put forth not just by sort of Muslims, but Hindus as well. And it was sort of a very well-established uh, notion. And so my book is trying to, to question that assumption and that narrative um, from a very particular textual perspective. So for those who may not have uh, ever heard of even Muslim presence in South Asia, I'm going to ask you the fraught question, when did Muslims come to South Asia? I think, um, as in every fraught question, um, once you break it down, once you break the question down into its constitutive parts, you'll see the answer revealing within it. So when did Muslims come to South Asia? Um, the answer depends on the definition of the word Muslim, the definition of the word South Asia, and whatever one may mean by the question of coming or arrival. Um, and I think once you, once you start thinking about these categories, and once someone like me who would argue that these are construction, these categories are historical processes, um, they're not events, they're not facts of being. Um, one can imagine multiple points of origins, one can imagine no points of origin and multiple continuities. As in, at some point, Arabs became Muslim, and these Arabs, of ethnic, ethnic Arabs, were just living in the region that became South Asia. At other point, um, people of um, Turkic descent or Central Asian de descent became Muslims and um, those regions became um, separated from what we understand to be South Asia. So, so that's sort of the, the broader answer, but to, to give you the, the, the fraught answer is that for the British Orientalists and, and subsequently, Islam came to South Asia, or Muslims came to South Asia in 712. And this is considered to be the political conquest led by Muhammad bin Qasim of the region of Sindh in North India. Alongside this argument are other arguments for trade settlements that predate the formation of Islam as a category. Um, Where about were those? The, you know, if you look at the sort of map of Arabian Gulf, Indian Ocean, uh, and this is something that I make a point of in the book, that if you draw a circle with a point, the central point somewhere off the coast of Yemen, you encompass what's contemporary in the contemporary maps would be Sindh, Gujarat, Maharashtra, Kerala, Oman, Yemen, um, you know, so that, that would be sort of a circle that you mm -hmm. would see. Now, this is a circle that has had continuous uh, habitation and exchange, going back to the Indus civilization, both uh, consistent habitation, but also consistent movement mm -hmm. of people whether by trade, for trade, for, for war, for marriage, whatever, are moving within this circle. So within this, this sort of the western uh, ghats up to Sindh down, and um, you know, Hadramaut, Yemen, etc., uh, then there's been, you know, recorded back to the Roman uh, trade, so second century CE, there are, um, uh, I'm sorry, um, Sri Lanka should be a you know, part of this, is also as well a part of the circle of Ceylon. 
Um, there have been both archaeological, numismatic remains that connect this is as a well-traveled, well-habituated space. So you're saying that the people who are moving around these spaces, some of whom were Arabs, at some point, some of them were also Arab Muslims. Exactly. And the decision to draw a line and say these were Muslims and this is when Muslims started being here is a political one that doesn't necessarily include this longer history of trade, but rather is focused on the military history. Right. So exactly. So the, the articulation of a narrative, which is a you know, the writing of history, is a political act, uh, and hence the politics of saying that this is the beginning, this is the origin. I argue is a uh, foundation for a larger story, and it's the political foundation of something called an Islamic state, which is by Muhammad bin Qasim in 712, that becomes a sort of symptomatic, defining event. Sindh is a pretty big province. So where within Sindh did Muhammad bin Qasim and his army go? So I think, um, you know, the, the problem with doing long durée history is that even though names or nomenclature stays the same, um, meaning behind them changes over, over, over you know, decades and centuries. So Sindh, as a region uh, in contemporary South Asia, mm -hmm. is one of the states or provinces in Pakistan, and it sort of extends from, the, from its base, it's, it's at the Arabian Sea, and it's sort of, or, or Persian Sea, and then it goes up uh, 700 kilometers up. But Sindh as a region in the Arab uh, geographical texts of the 8th, 9th, 10th uh, centuries denoted the land to the west of the Indus River. That was the Bilad al Sindh, and then Bilad al Hind was the land to the east of the Indus River. Mm -hmm. And then, in various points, Sindh included contemporary you know, portions of, of, of contemporary Iran, included um, what became partition spaces of, with India, etc. Mm -hmm. For the purpose of this 8th century um, event, this um, campaigns that was led by Muhammad bin Qasim and 712, it's sort of the region we can call of uh, parts of the region of contemporary Balochistan, parts of the region of contemporary Sindh, and parts of the region of uh, the Third Desert and into, um, into Rajasthan. So this is part of both contemporary Pakistan and contemporary India? Contemporary Iran, Pakistan, and India, yes. Hmm. Where within this broad region did Muhammad bin Qasim set up what is called the first Islamic state in South Asia? Called so by the, by the colonial state, yes. So, you know, this is the geography of the, this is arid land, uh, desert to um, cultivation as we get closer to the river. The river itself, this is very flat territory, so the river changes sort of directions um, as a result of floods and other, other natural occurrences, often um, in a year, if not, um, uh, uh, you know, more often than that. And however, we had, um, as is sort of detailed in mid-9th century accounts, so we're already some 200 years after the event, mm -hmm. uh, in mid-9th century uh, Arabic, Arabic histories, um, locates a series of uh, 
cities, forts, and establishments in this region. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dabal is one big um, such city. It doesn't uh, we only have archaeological remains in contemporary Pakistan? Uch is a um, major city uh, at the time, but now it's a much more smaller town uh, in contemporary Pakistan again in the southern Punjab region, mm-hmm. and not in what we call Sindh. Nerun, etc. So there are a set of um, large uh, settlements um, that sort of disappear, some of them disappear over time. In your book, you make it clear that in modern day Pakistan, this narrative of Muhammad bin Qasim coming specifically to these cities that you're men- mentioning along this trade route, um, this narrative is well known. So, how exactly is it told in Pakistan today? I mean, when I was going through my primary education in, in Lahore, um, I think our, both our third grade and sixth grade classes, the history textbooks began with Muhammad bin Qasim as the first citizen of Pakistan. Mm-hmm. Um, so for the nationalist uh, regimes of Zawal Haq, the dictatorial nationalist regimes of Zawal Haq in the 80s, uh, Muhammad bin Qasim was a uh, the founder of the idea of Pakistan, if not the actual Islamic state of Pakistan. Um, and so that um, portrayal of Muhammad bin Qasim in, then also um, was surrounded by all kinds of cultural capital. Um, there were TV series that focused on his person, personhood, novels, plays, um, public processions, uh, poetry, etc. And so the result that this event and, and the, the figure of this um, Syrian descendant Muslim warrior um, became known as the foundation, the founding father, as it were, of mm-hmm. the Islamic State mm-hmm. uh, of, of Pakistan. Mm-hmm. Um, this is, however, something that sort of, uh, as I argue in the book, came about as a result of the, um, the um, independence of Bangladesh in 1971. So, as in, this is a national myth that grows after 1971 um, and becomes the most dominant myth uh, for uh, contemporary Pakistan. Mm-hmm. So to go back to the, the central topic of, of your work, what really is the Book of Conquest? Um, so a Book of Conquest is in, uh, to, trans- translate, to translate it back into Arabic um, would be a fatname um, uh, into Arabic or Persian. It's, it's, a, it's a technical term for a book that um, a text that narrates the conquest of a region, a space, a uh, town, etc. And uh, these fathnames were uh, a genre of text that sort of emerged in the Abbasid period uh, and emerged out of uh, a wider set of literature. Um, the text that I argue in my book is foundational to this idea of Islam's arrival as an origin text mm-hmm. is a Persian text that was composed by um, um, a person named Ali Kufi in the early part of the 13th century, around 1220 to 1226 or so. So this is a long time after Muhammad bin Qasim's arrival. It, this would be about 500 plus years after the event called the arrival. Uh, event. The argument that the Chachname, um, as you would notice, um, Chachname or Chachnama, um, the book of Chach, um, 
makes is that it's a translation of a eyewitness account of this history from 500 years ago. So this is a, a Fatname Sindh, the conquest of Sindh, or that is composed in or, or, or put together in the early part of 13th century that claims deliberately and uh, uh, clearly that it is a uh, translation from Arabic into Persian of an 8th century um, Arabic text. But what I argue is that this claim of translation is actually part and parcel of a, a regime of prestige uh, and literary descent that was quite common in the 13th century um, South Asia, and that this text is actually an original composition written in the 13th century to address the questions of the 13th century. So the title for the book, A Book of Conquest, is, um, what is it, tongue-in-cheek? As in, the argument of the book is that it's actually not a book of conquest. It's right. something much more than that. And so if it's not a book of conquest, then what is it? I make a set of arguments for what the book is, um, the 13th century Chachnami is. Um, one of the key arguments that I make is that it's a, a text of political theory that is concerned with articulating how a mutually constitutive state can be put into practice. Mutually constitutive here is elite that may profess themselves to be um, Brahminical or elite that may uh, profess themselves to be Sunni um, in their sectarian hood, in their sectarian self-avowal. Self, uh, and um, so one is how do you construct a, a sort of multi a multipolar state in the early 13th century when the pressure of the Mongol armies is on, you know, the forces of Chinggis Khan have actually surrounded Butch, um, right? So there's a lot of uh, pressure, of political pressure, military pressure on mm -hmm. this region. Uh, the Delhi Sultanate, it, this is the pre-formation of the Delhi, the, the Sultanate based in Delhi. Mm -hmm. And so in this tumultuous time, when long-established political hierarchies are toppling down, um, I argue that this is a text that tries to put forward the vision of the political that can work when you need multiple forms of um, uh, claims to power uh, and mm -hmm. multiple literary and theoretical registers to draw upon. So that's one of the th things that this book is. This is a book of theory, political theory. Um, but I also think it's also a book of ethics and in a sense, it gives you the sort of ways and means of how to be an ethical subject, ways and means to be how to be an ethical ruler, um, ways and means into how to organize a city or organize a, a polity. With emphasis on justice, that is again uh, multipolar, as in it draws upon various traditions, ideas of what justice looks like. And finally, I think uh, I make the argument that it's also. Um, a type of mirror for princess, um, uh, uh, sort of a text for good, uh, for good conduct, um, for elite, um, and so different. So I, I sort of investigate different facets of this text um, uh, in my sort of uh, substantive chapters. You um, you just explained that the text draws on different traditions of what justice is and what rulership can look like. Um, can you explain what some of those traditions were? So again, you know, I think if you begin with the premise that Muslims are outsiders to South Asia, or you begin with the premise that 
Islam is a her hermetically sealed tradition, mm -hmm. um, you're going to look for sources of tradition in a particular space. So oftentimes, scholarship on Islamic history um, only examines um, tradition as Quran or Hadith or uh, Sunnah or um, you know very narrow what we can consider to be a very narrow band of cultural production or theological production or historical production, and it's actually you know uh, the case for South Asia and especially the case for Chashnama. I argue that it draws not simply on quote unquote Islamic or Islamicate traditions, but also on uh, Buddhist, Sanskritic, uh, Jain, and other sort of traditions that were active and invoked in um, in Sindh at the time. So things like Arthashastra or uh, Kalila Vadimna, which were sort of Jataka tales, um, uh, tales that sort of talked about social conduct, um, um, and as well as sort of um, obviously Quran or other sort of uh, instructive material that would be familiar for um, the sort of Muslim armies or Muslim polities of the region. And that the, the, I think the, the, the important part here is not simply the, the fact that these, this text draws upon everything from Shahnameh to Arthur Shastra, but that it does so without uh, privileging one over the other and in a sort of invisible way, invisible to the reader, that is. And I think that actually is a very, very important epistemic point that the author or the audience of the 13th century could imagine stories originating from a, a wide a variety of Persianate, Sanskritic, or Prakrit, um, or, or Arabic literary and, and non-literary sources. And the text was able to draw upon this immediately tells us something about the, the, the world of letters uh, within which this text is composed. This is the Ottoman History Podcast, and I'm Shireen Hamza talking to Manan Ahmed Asif. The music you were just listening to is a song from Ganavia Swami's upcoming album, Aikim. Here's the rest of the interview. In order for us to get an experience of how these multiple traditions are simultaneously or um, very closely invoked by the text in a seamless way, and not necessarily an identifiable way, 
Could you maybe read for us a passage from the Chachnama? Sure, I think um, um, I can begin by sort of explaining why it's called Chachnama rather than Muhammad bin Qasim Nama or, or you know, Fatnama as a mm-hmm. book. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it, that's first of all, that's a very early designation for the text. We have you know early 14th century sort of references to the text that call it as the popularly known as the book of Chach. Um, and so we can we can say that this is a part of the reception of the text. Um, the first part of the Chachname as a text has uh, concerns the coming to power and. Uh, uh, making a, poly- a polity in Sindh by a guy named uh, Chach, uh, Chach Ben Salaj, um, who is of, uh, of uh, Brahminical descent and is a, um, is a, uh, is a writer, a uh, scribe. And so uh, how did he come to power? What did he do to stay in power? And then once he dies, how did his two sons um, sort of contest for the polity? Um, and then his son Dahir, who was the ruling uh, king at the moment of uh, that Muhammad bin Qasim, enters the story in the in the seven in the seven eleven uh, seven twelve CE. So, so this is a pretty large portion of the text. This is approximately you know one quarter, maybe a little bit more of the text. So I'm going to read something that refers to this earlier uh, portion of the text, but from um, the uh, part of the text which is concerned Muhammad bin Qasim's um, um, sort of uh, movement through this space. Um, and this is from a chapter called A Demon with Ruby Eyes. And the main argument of the chapter is, is the ways in which Chachname sort of thinks about uh, difference. Uh, difference here is uh, sacral difference, but also um, polity. So I quote, Qasim's next encounter with an idol elicits a different emotional response from him. He's frightened when he enters the temple in Multan. Mum bin Qasim entered that temple with his advisors and his nobles. He saw a gold idol with two bright ruby eyes, glowing red. Mum bin Qasim thought that this was a man. He unsheathed this, his sword to strike the idol, but the Brahmin caretaker exclaimed, Oh, just commander, this is but an idol, a but." that the king of Multan, Juban, created and under which they sequester riches and treasures. Then Muhammad bin Qasim commanded to have the idol lifted." Qasim's reaction of fear before the ruby eyes links this episode to that of the frightening demon confronted by Chach. The Brahmin Chach had been scared and changed his mind from killing the Buddhist priest to rebuilding the temple. This Muslim Qasim is scared enough to consider striking the idol but does not. Like Chach agreeing to rebuild the Buddhist temple, Qasim under the advisement of the caretaker, commits to the public good by protecting the idol and the temple. Quote, then he gathered the noble and the public of Multan and entered into a pact with them, safeguarded the idol, built a central mosque, and appointed as the city's commander Daud bin Nasr bin Walid Umani. So here we have a sort of an act of governance and an act of con- conquest in the later half of Chachnami that explicitly draws upon and links itself to an episode from the pre-Islamic, quote-unquote, pre-Islamic period of the region um, to draw both a symbiotic relationship but also to take, uh, to link policy, in this case, protecting the temple and the idol and the traffic, 
two decisions made earlier in in um, the period before Islam, uh, before Muhammad bin Qasim. This is uh, this portion of the text that you read makes it even more striking that historians have been ignoring this earlier fourth or some portion of the text that is about Chach. And I think uh, you're right. And I think that it's not simply an accident that, that the British Orientalists or the national historians or even contemporary historians do not read the pre-Muslim, um, the pre-Muhammad bin Qasim parts of the Chachnami. On the one hand, it, this is because the, the collection and uh, editing and translation um, practices of the colonial regime, of the British colonial regime. Um, Chachnama was the first text in um, Henry Mears Eliot's uh, archival and translation project that ended in uh, after his death was published as the history of Mohammedan um, uh, India as told by its own historians and for that project uh, Eliot selected Chachnama but only its Muslim portions mm -hmm. and that continued into nationalist historiography the, the idea of just looking only at the Muslim uh, portion of the text and into all the way into sort of contemporary historical practice of uh, you know the last time a major study on the Chachnama was done was in the mid of 1980s mm -hmm. uh, by Daryl excellent book by Daryl McLean um, that sort of continues this sort of um, uh, sort of divide between Muslim and Muslim parts of Chachnama. Besides putting the Chachnama in conversation with its contemporary literary traditions even outside Arabic historiography, so Persianate traditions, Sanskritic traditions, you also bring to our attention a set of readings or of uh, memories of the Chachnama and the stories it tells that are alive today in actually the geography which the text centers on, so present-day Uch. This is a pretty uh, unique uh, move for a medieval historian to um, bring simultaneously together the medieval history and the present-day memory. Could you tell us a little more about your choice to uh, to write in this way and to research in this way? Absolutely. Um, I mean, to me, this, this is the method of the book. The method of the book is um, part ethnographic, part historiographic, and then part... Um, philological and um, hermeneutical. Um, and archaeological, right? And archaeological, absolutely. Um, um, and the reason that um, the, the method, uh, the, the reason that I believe uh, that this method was necessary um, was because um, the history of Islam's arrival, the origins narrative, is so constitutive of, um, you know, these meta-narratives, that there is um, no way of thinking about the past without engaging with the actors and agents and spaces that constitute that past. And the challenge for me was not simply to argue against a set of historians who may have been writing in contemporary moment or, um, you know, the Orientalist project, but rather to say, take seriously the presence of the text uh, to the lived landscape within which it was born and in which it sustained itself for almost a millennia. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a challenge of thinking about um, textuality and history uh, while taking seriously landscape and space and, and uh, the modes in which a text lives in, in 
And so, um, listeners may be surprised to actually hear that the Chachanama is a part of the historical memory for residents of Uch today. Absolutely, not just of Uch, but Sindh in general, mm. and and even um, other other communities that that are in partitioned uh, because of our geography, our partitioned geographies. And so, to begin the process of thinking about the text. Um, starting in about 2009 or so, I, I walked through most of contemporary Sindh um, and focused heavily in uh, Uch, where I conducted fieldwork, ethnographic work, um, and archival work. Um, I visited most of the archaeological sites. I talked to individuals, both um, in the various sort of, uh, you know, conservation of the practices, but also people who just live there, live in, in, in these archaeological spaces. Um, and most importantly for me was the fact that as a citizen of Pakistan, I, I was not able to and never could actually walk the entire geography of what constitutes the Chashnam as a text. Um, but um, rather than ignore or, or um, uh, glide over this, I chose to think with this uh, partition geography, what does it mean for my method, what does it mean for my interpretive tasks. So a lot, so some of the, the interpretations that I do of a 13th century text are inflected through conversations and uh, challenges that I faced in um, thinking about this text with the residents of Uch, the residents of Sindh, uh, historians who are, we, we may sometimes call perhaps in a derogative fashion, um, you know, um, community historians or, or oral historians mm -hmm. or um, people who write outside or think outside or narrate outside of the boundaries of academic um, history. I found very striking the encounter that you describe in the conclusion of the book in which you go to the person whom residents of the area describe as the historian, uh, the Mu'arikh. So he says to you, you know, going through each and every group of people who have uh, occupied Uj or written about it, um, he says to you that it's never been conquered. Yes. And you point out to him, well, actually, like, the British were here. So pretty recently, actually. Um, and you let us think with you in that conclusion about how a critical historian might um, need to reassess the way that they understand uh, community historians and their assertions and their memories and their interpretations. Um, so could you tell us some more about that encounter and what it meant for you in the writing of this book? Yeah, and I think here again, I think this is an ethics of fieldwork that I adhere to, which is that the narratives, the stories that were shared with me were had uh, an epistemic weight or an, and an ontological weight that was not de facto uh, inferior to my epistemic or my ontological weight. Uh, and this is a very troubling space to be in for someone, uh, some of us who, who, who sort of argue about the, you know, objectivity or the truthiness of, of, of contemporary um, social science and scientific practices. Um, but to me, it wasn't about the truth per se, but rather um, that perhaps he and I were talking about the same thing, but 
through a very different uh, idea of what continuity, rupture, break actually entails. Mm -hmm. So I can maybe read that small paragraph. Um, so this is right after he sort of tells me that, you know, they have never been conquered. And I say, wait, they've been conquered by these 500 places. Um, <laughs> I have struggled to understand my conversation with this historian of which. At first, my incredulity at his treatment of the cannonball clouded my thinking. He had dismissed a material piece of history that I would feel the necessity to put in a museum or to memorialize with a note. In this man's narrative, which had constantly rebuffed conquerors, and the British cannonball was mere evidence, just another artifact. The logic of his narrative did not require the presence of the con cannonball. I had tried to correct him, and I told him that Uch had indeed been conquered. And I had quickly asserted that he was telling the wrong story about Uch to himself and to the others. I later became unsure these many military conquests of which did not change the history which he was remarking upon. The spiritual and cultural significance of Uch, indeed, from the perspective of the imperial and political centers of Baghdad, Delhi, or London, many figures had overcome Uch and had ravaged the landscape. However, from the perspective of Uch, one could see the resilience of the structures and frames that connected medieval shrines to practices, practices to texts, texts to markets, and markets to network that reached far and wide. That was the landscape that gave birth to the Indic Chachnama and then preserved it and nurtured it since the 13th century. The story of an always conquered Uch could not explain how this text came to be written in the first place and why it survived. So in that sense, I think him and I were talking about the same thing. Um, because as a historian, if I'm trying to explain not simply the, the coming into the world of a text, but rather why this text still exists, so that I, 800 years later, I'm struggling to understand it. Um, there is a persistent, there is a, a continuity uh -huh. um, that this historian from Uch was arguing with me. And I felt the ethical and professional, let's say, um, courtesy of taking him seriously and thinking through his argument and what it meant for what I was trying to argue. And listeners who are curious about the very visible and um, material remnants that really speak to this surviving history in Uch today can visit our website, www.ottomanhistorypodcast.com, where uh, Professor Ahmed has kindly provided a bibliography for further reading and a few images of the landscape. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Professor Ahmed. Thank you so very much for having me. Oh, yeah.